You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Logan, Cannon Monkey, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nikki, Toves, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patron, Joey, and our newest Commodores, Brendan, Josiah, Axios, and Governor Roop. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I've had a few folks reach out and express a bit of surprise that we've seen two separate ships called San Rose, both carrying Mathur and de Marais in, well, in succession. It's a cool coincidence, but really not that out of the ordinary. Remember, they were both Spanish frigates, of 14 and 16 guns respectively. Before they were captured, they were named Santa Rosa. Both of them probably were named after Santa Rosa de Lima, a real person, a nun born in Lima, Peru. Santa Rosa de Lima led an impressive life. We're not going to delve into it here, but if you're so inclined, it's worth looking into. Mostly, she's notable as the first person born in the Americas to be canonized as a saint. That's why we run into so many ships in Spanish America called Santa Rosa. Now, I don't intend to give the impression that that's why we see so many ships named Rose from other parts of the world. Most English ships, with some variation of Rose in the title, the Sally Rose accepted, are named after either the Tudor Rose or they go way back to the Wars of the Roses. Most famously, perhaps, was the Mary Rose, maybe the most famous English vessel of the Middle Ages. The Mary Rose was commissioned by Henry VIII way back in 1516, and named after his eldest daughter, Mary. She's so famous, though, because she was recovered from the ocean floor in 1982. It was an amazing feat of maritime archaeology and has taught us a huge amount about naval warfare in the late Middle Ages. For example... The Mary Rose could fire a full broadside, an innovation that many scholars thought came later. However, the Mary Rose was lost at sea in 1545. That's the very tale of the Middle Ages, right as the early modern era was beginning to bloom. 
She was lost in a battle between the French and the English, the Battle of Soleil, the last naval battle between France and England for 145 years. Until, that is, the Nine Years' War, when France and England fought the Battle of Bantry Bay. This is episode 182, The Battle of Bantry Bay. We're going to be concerned largely with Royal Navy ships today. The Battle of Bantry Bay was fought between the Royal Navies of England and France. The ship it might be best to begin with was HMS Newcastle. Newcastle was an old vessel. She was built in 1654. Her commission was part of Oliver Cromwell's western design. But in 1688, Newcastle was given over to a young and somewhat promising naval officer named George Churchill. You remember George Churchill, right? That's John Churchill's brother, the man who served under Sir John Narborough on the search for La Nuestra Señora. Well, George Churchill was a passable naval commander, but really nothing special. He got the job of captain in the Navy for two major reasons. First of all, he was a Tory, and that went a long way in the court of King James II. But more importantly, maybe... Most importantly, George Churchill's sister was sleeping with the king. It's all part of those fascinating sexual politics of the late Stuart era. Annabel Churchill, their sister, was a maid of honor to King James' wife, Anne Hyde. That's when she began an affair with the king, and you should remember that group of girls. The Jennings sisters were also maids of honor to Anne Hyde, one of whom would go on to become Sarah Churchill, best friend of the Queen. It's all a very tight-knit little community there. But Annabel and George Churchill were staunch Tories. They were firmly in the camp of King James, Annabel especially firmly, while John Churchill and the rest of their family were staunch Whigs. Now, I'm not saying that the Churchills and the Jennings were hedging their bets by ensuring that someone in the family was sleeping with or befriending or bribing relevant people on both sides. But it does appear that they were playing both sides of the field. At least, it worked out that way. However, even though George Churchill was a James-supporting Tory, by the fall of 1888 he'd made the smart move and switched sides, and he did so in dramatic fashion. His commanding officer, Admiral of the Blue, Arthur Herbert, sailed yet another ship of note today, HMS Rupert, over to Amsterdam. He did so to deliver the invitation to William to invade. And it was just about that moment, when Arthur Herbert was in Amsterdam, that Captain George Churchill of HMS Newcastle noticed his ship was just full of leaks. I mean, a real death trap. Naturally, to save the life of his men, he had to put into Plymouth for repairs. And at which point, wouldn't you know it, all of the other captains in his fleet began to look around and notice a bunch of leaks of their own. They had this sudden plague of leaky hulls. The channel fleet was just, oh, it was just stricken. So naturally, they all had to put into Plymouth, too. Which, and I'm sure it's just coincidence here, but it perfectly coincided with William's fleet setting out from the continent to invade, led by Arthur Herbert, at the exact same moment that, 
And again, I'm sure it's a coincidence that John Churchill and a number of other prominent military men led an army conspiracy against the king, all of it backed by Parliament. Just coincidence. But George Churchill got a lot of credit for being the first to need repairs. It was a defection, and it earned George Churchill a place in the Navy after William took the throne. You might remember that purge of Jacobite Navy officers that claimed the careers of men like uh, Thomas Pound. But that didn't catch George Churchill. That's how, and why, he was still the master of the Newcastle a few months later, when the deposed King James sailed from Brest, in Brittany in France, to land an army of Jacobite loyalists and French soldiers in Ireland. That's the Williamite War, and we glossed over the Williamite War pretty hard when we talked about it. And really, we're not going to rectify that fact today. I will just say that William and James both had English and Irish units, and they were bolstered, respectively, by Dutch and French contingents. At first, it looked like James was doing pretty well. He had a few early victories. But then they ran into a wall of well-armed forts and armies in what would become Northern Ireland. The war at that point just kind of stalled out. It turned into that war for supplies, and that was a war that William was winning. He controlled sea lanes from Ireland to England and all the way to Holland. James, on the other hand, had to rely on supplies and reinforcements from France. Now, after the Glorious Revolution, Arthur Herbert was promoted to Lord High Admiral. His one job as Lord High Admiral was to stop the French from landing on either Ireland or Britain. To that end, he instituted a policy that would, well, really, it would change the Royal Navy forever. He called it, and coined the phrase, a fleet in being. That's a, a strategy in a time of war in which a nation with a superior navy would just keep a large fleet in port. That would force the enemy to deploy naval forces to defend against the mere threat of an invasion. That deployment would tie up their ships, and since their fleet was forced to go to sea in a defensive posture, it would also cost them a lot of money. And of course, if they didn't deploy those forces, they didn't tie up their ships and spend that money, well, then the fleet in being would just invade. It's a brilliant innovation, all of it thanks to Arthur Herbert. Beyond that, though, Herbert was a controversial figure. My favorite controversy is the accusation that he was a, a foul-mouthed drunk in the habit of bringing at least two prostitutes on board whenever he went to sea. My kind of guy. However, most of those rumors have been debunked. More reputable were the delays in pay that plagued the Navy. It got so bad that here in 1689 and 1690, the Navy suffered a wave of strikes and mutinies and sailors just refusing to sail which hit at just the wrong moment, right when the French were preparing a fleet to make for Ireland. A fleet in being isn't much of a deterrent when the sailors won't sail. Which, of course, isn't to say that no sailors were willing to sail. George Churchill's ship, at this point, HMS Pendennis, was a 1,100-ton, 70-gun, third-rate ship of the line. She was ready to fight alongside 23 other ships. The other ship I want to note, especially here, is HMS Rupert. She was still fully manned and fully operational. 
Now at this point, Admiral Herbert was no longer captain of the Rupert. He was Lord High Admiral, after all. Instead, the Rupert was under Captain Francis Wheeler, and that's according to the ship's manifest, recorded in March 1689. The Rupert was a fine, fine vessel of the Royal Navy, a 790-ton, 64-gun, third-rate ship of the line. She was commissioned back in 1665 upon the official establishment of the Royal Navy. Samuel Pepys records in his famous diary, quote, The king, duke, and everybody, saying it is the best ship that was ever built. End quote. Now, it was no longer the best ship ever built. She was only a third-rate ship of the line, but an impressive and valuable craft nonetheless. She wasn't unique in this squadron guarding against French invasion. They had a ton of third-rates in the Channel Fleet. But I'm mentioning HMS Rupert in particular here because of one man, a 30-year-old midshipman who presumably signed up in the wake of the Revolution. Or maybe it was that wave of strikes. I mean, if half the Channel Fleet suddenly refused to sail until they got their back pay, the Navy was likely recruiting, heavily, probably in the West Country, especially in places like Plymouth and Devon. And we all know how that kind of recruiting usually went, right? You're just minding your own business in a tavern somewhere, having a couple of drinks and maybe trying to catch the eye of the lady serving those drinks, when a friendly chap with a posh London accent saunters over and strikes up a conversation. Nice enough fellow, even offers to buy a round, then another round, and then maybe a tot of rum, and then five or six more. Next thing you know, you're waking up with the worst hangover of your life, your eyes are trying to crawl out of the sockets, your tongue is two sizes too big, your head is throbbing, and, and the floor just won't sit still. It's spinning, and it's pulsating, and it's rising, and it's falling, and you think you're going to be sick. It's, well, it's almost like, oh, it's almost like you're on a ship. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
That was only one form the press gangs took. In that situation, you would wake up on a ship with a major headache and a contract lasting, usually until the war was over. Other men were impressed straight out of the stockades. Find yourself imprisoned, guilty of a crime, no problem, join the navy, hey, you might live. Still others, though, were just knocked over the head and bundled aboard as little more than slaves. Some men were recruited in a more traditional fashion, something we would recognize from modern military recruiters. You know, they'd offer you pay and benefits. But at that point, who's going to take that deal? Half the Navy is currently on strike for unpaid wages. But some did, and we don't know how this particular midshipman arrived on board HMS Rupert. But the manifest of HMS Rupert, in March 1689, listed Henry Every, as a crewman in good standing. And I should point out that Every was probably not press-ganged, violently or otherwise. He was a midshipman, which was an officer in the Royal Navy. It was the lowest officer rank available, but an officer nonetheless. E.T. Fox writes in King of the Pirates, quote, By Every's time, the role of midshipman had not quite evolved into the familiar one of a young man of good family entering the Navy to learn seamanship. Originally, the rank of midshipmen was given to experienced seamen who were thought fit to become officers, so they might learn leadership as well as seamanship. End quote. Now, Fox brings up a couple of good points here, points that raise questions of class, to me at least. In Every's day, midshipmen were usually commoners, commoners that had a bit of education, certainly. They had to be able to read and to read maps and usually they came from regions and families that provided some kind of seafaring experience, like the West Country. Henry Every was a perfect candidate for midshipmen at the time. Later on, though, by, you know, the height of the British Empire, midshipmen were almost always noble youths with noble parents, and they were serving a, a kind of apprenticeship. But they were officers here. They were the lowest officers, but still of the officer corps. That means that the, uh, the rabble, the regular crewmen of common birth, had to defer to these young, spoiled, noble brats. But it was here in 1689 that the Navy was just beginning that transition. There were probably boys of a higher social caste serving alongside Henry Every. They would be equal in rank to the gruff sailor, but... I can actually see the merits of that situation. If you've got a young man, 12 or 14, born to privilege but with promising naval prospects, I can only see it as a good thing for him to work alongside men of lower social standing, but men that can neither be ordered around by him nor order the boy around. You're forcing this noble youth to learn how to deal with people as people. The U.S. equivalent of the midshipman is the ensign. I imagine, and oh boy am I sorry about this analogy, but imagine Wesley Crusher and Worf from Star Trek. Imagine that they held the same rank and they had to work together. There would be friction at first, absolutely, but eventually they'd work past that and learn to work together, and the Enterprise as a whole would be stronger for it. But beyond that... This system, under which Henry Every was made midshipman, provided a path of social and economic advancement for those of lower class, at least those with the merit to succeed. 
Naturally, though, once the Navy became a more desirable profession for people of quality, the wealthy and powerful could not allow the ranks to be sullied by those filthy, ignorant, detestable commoners. A ton of pearl-clutching nobles actually formally protested this arrangement later on. I mean, imagine it, our baby boy forced to mingle with the rabble, the horror, the scandal. They should be serving him punch and crumpets. As far as Henry Avery's conduct in the battle to come is concerned, we know very little. I won't be regaling you with feats of the Pirate King's early daring do. But we do know he's going to serve with distinction in the first naval battle fought between England and France in 145 years. In France, Marquis de Chateau Renault, Vice Admiral Francois Louis Rousset, was given command of 24 ships. They were carrying guns and rations and warm clothes and shoes and a pile of money and upwards of 5,000 soldiers. His job, above all, was to get those supplies and reinforcements past the English and on to the shores of Ireland, to bolster James, to give the deposed king the tools needed for victory. And we should remember Chateau Renault. He's going to be one of France's top naval commanders in this war, and specifically in relation to our story. Now, the French fleet was comprised mostly of third- and fourth-rate ships of the line. They had a handful of gunboats and fire ships, and when I say fire ships, it's just what you're thinking of. A smaller craft, usually, you know, a bark or a sloop, that was filled with bales of straw and hemp and barrels of pitch and even gunpowder, and crewed by a skeleton crew, whose only real job was to aim the ship at a blockade and light everything aflame and get off as fast as possible. The English fleet had a similar makeup, mostly third or fourth rates and a few fire ships and two bomb ships. My favorite of those is the Fire Drake. But they also had, and this is important, a few frigates in their midst. They were classified as fifth rate ships of the line which is mostly a distinction of tonnage and guns they carried, but really the frigate isn't designed for battles of the line. You know, they weren't made to line up and fire at the other side as long as possible. They're fast and mobile ships. They're well-armed, but they're, they're meant to flank the enemy line. You know, in my heart, first-rate indeed. Now, there were three landing sites realistically available to Chateau Renault. They were all on the southwest coast of Ireland. The first two were two large port cities, Cork and Kinsale. They were held by forces either friendly to James II or neutral. They were really the best possible locations for the French. They were the goal. But then you had, just about as far southwest as Ireland goes, a lightly populated bay called Bantry. And it wasn't exactly a port city there at Bantry Bay, but more of a village on a secluded cove that was frequented by Irish nationalists and pirates, who, you know, were usually the same people. Most of Admiral Herbert's forces by April of 1689 were patrolling the waters of southwest Ireland around Cork and Kinsale. It was the logical location to patrol. It was the 6th of May that Chateau Renault departed Brest in Brittany. He took his fleet wide out into the Atlantic to avoid any English patrols he might run into, but by the 10th of May he was bringing the fleet back in toward Ireland. 
Now, Chateau Renault sent out a frigate to scout Kinsale, the more southwest of the two port cities. If the English were, by chance, foolish enough to have left it unguarded, then the operation here would be a breeze, a quick in-and-out job with no fighting at all. But Kinsale was not unguarded. An English lookout, one of Admiral Herbert's men, spotted the French ship, and both of them immediately jumped into action. The Frenchmen came about and opened up full sail to get back to their fleet. The English did the same, but, you know, the other direction. However, within the hour, both fleets were racing south and west around the coast of Ireland. When Admiral Herbert arrived where the French ship had been spotted, there was no sight of him or Chateau Renault. He sent a few frigates off to search the coast, just in case they were hiding there, but the mass of the English fleet headed on to the only location left to the French, Bantry Bay. Herbert arrived on the morning of the 11th of May, and really he was too late. The French were already ensconced in Bantry Bay. They were unloading their supplies onto Ireland. But at a glance, though, it looked like the English had the French trapped. There was no way for the French to escape except through the English line. But the French were ready for this. Chateau Renault ordered his fire ships lit and sent them toward the English. Now this wasn't some kind of surprise attack here. If you're a ship's captain and you see a smaller craft that sets a heading right at your line, and then you see all of her boats depart back to the enemy fleet, you know what's coming. Soon enough, she's going to burst into flames and strike your flagship, and a hellstorm of fire and death is going to rain down upon you. Now, it was occasionally a successful surprise, usually when it happened at night, as we will see much later on in this story at the blockade of Nassau. But most often it was completely telegraphed. You knew it was coming. Because that maneuver is not really designed to actually hit the enemy line. I mean, that would be great, But the enemy was going to move. It was designed to break the enemy line. And it did, here. Herbert's fleet, when they saw the fire ships coming for them, scattered out of the bay. They didn't lose a single vessel from the fire ship, but the French and Chateau Renault were no longer trapped. That's when they moved. Some of his ships were still unloading the last of the cargo, but those that weren't burst out of the bay and opened fire on the English. They were doing so right as the English were trying to reform their line. It, Well, that hit the English as a surprise. It was a a ruthless hit, just smashed into them. But that is what the frigates were for. The English frigates, who were not required to form the line, swung around and engaged the French on her flanks. They tied up all of the French gunners, which allowed the English to get into position. There's a reason that pirates, if possible, preferred a frigate. And here, at long last, the two fleets were properly arrayed for a proper battle of the line. They could engage as God intended gentlemen of the sea to fight, which, that is to say, the story gets mind-numbingly boring. You know, when ships of the line fought in a battle of the line, they just kind of sat there in a line and fired at each other. And yeah, I'm sure that that was pretty exciting for the people involved, They were being pelted with hot iron and lead balls that tore through wood and flesh alike for hours on end, in this case for four hours. But there's not much tale to tell there, beyond, you know, the misery of it all. As for Henry Every, well, we don't know what he was doing during the fight. You know, no one wrote down the exploits of this lone midshipman. 
but we can glean a little bit. He must have proven himself to be a capable sailor, even a decent enough officer, in the fight. See, after Bantry Bay was over, Every was promoted to a mate of HMS Rupert's sailing master. Now, E.T. Fox suggests that he was probably the lowest master's mate on the totem pole, but David F. Marley says in Pirates of the Americas that Henry Every was chief mate. Now, I'm inclined to lean toward Fox on this one. It's not impossible that Henry Every was made chief mate. I mean, maybe his conduct was just stellar in the battle. But for a promotion like that, he'd have to be, you know, swinging over to the enemy ship and cutting down her captain in single combat. More likely, everyone in front of him in line was killed in the battle, so every was able to jump up the ladder a few rungs. But again, most likely, I think every was probably promoted to the lowest master's mate. That's really how nearly all midshipmen advanced in their career. They would go from midshipman to master's mate and then work their way up the ranks of master's mates, and then, after a couple of years doing that, they could test for lieutenant. If they passed that test, and it was not an easy test, but if they passed, they would be moved into the proper officer corps, no longer a junior officer. And you know, wouldn't... Well, wouldn't Star Trek have been cooler if, when, you know, Wesley failed his Starfleet Academy entrance exam, he captured a starship and headed out into the black for a little good old-fashioned space piracy? And then, you know, when that, when that big Borg battle happens, he could show up with a fleet of stolen Klingon warbirds and drop his cloaking shield and show off his top-of-the-line Borg tech that just, you know, wrecks the bad guys. And then there could be this moment, you know, when the Federation is about to attack the pirates even though they saved the day, but Picard steps up and talks them down because he knows the true heart of Wesley Crusher. But then, of course, Wesley somehow absconds with the Federation starship. I mean, you know, I should really cut this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to let this go out. Yeah, yeah. Remember, remember to cut this, Matt. Okay. <clears throat> the Battle of Bantry Bay was, in the end inconclusive. Neither side won the fight, and both limped off to lick their wounds. But the French operation to get their supplies to Ireland was a success. Chateau Renault bought plenty of time for the French to unload, and that... well, the immediate effect of that was the Battle of the Boyne, which took place on the 1st of July. The Boyne was the first major fight between William and James in Ireland, but it was a, a decisive Williamite victory. However, the lingering effects of the Battle of Bantry Bay were much more widespread. This fight proved to both sides that they would really have to up their naval game moving forward. They needed more ships and more sailors and more impressment, which means more disgruntled sailors, and... In the New World, they were going to need a whole lot more privateers. We're going to talk about those privateers and the events in New England in two weeks' time. Next time, we're going to take a break from the narrative of our story, and we're going to talk about some of the concepts of piracy. You know, big stuff, the political and economic and the social structure of piracy. I hope you'll join us. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.